Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. Have you ever started something thinking you would end up in one place, but you ended up in an entirely different place? That's exactly what happened to my guest today, Michelle Linford. In 2008, she started a blog called Mormon Women, which was an opportunity for her to share positive stories about Mormon women on the internet to combat false stereotypes about Mormons and women in general. But then she started to notice a pattern. Traffic patterns were coming in that were showing that women were really interested in getting help and resources to combat their husband's pornography problems. They wanted to know what they could do. So after a few years, she started a website called Hope and Healing LDS, which included a blog and a private forum so that these women wouldn't be alone, so they could have others with whom they could connect and have resources and information She really wanted to help them start to heal. And what's interesting is in the course of offering this space for women and starting to offer this hope and healing to them, she started to do some of her own healing work. She really wanted to have what these women had. So she found herself in a 12-step group, working on things like perfectionism and blame and other kinds of things that she struggled with in her personal life. And she started to find healing. In fact, she said that this is what really saved her soul. She felt like besides her testimony of the gospel, doing her 12-step work was one of the most life-changing things she's ever experienced. And in the course of this, Michelle has become an observer. She's noticed patterns and principles of healing relating to addiction and healing from betrayal from a loved one's addiction. In today's episode, I just spent time listening to Michelle talk about the things that she has learned in her journey of not only observing what these women have shared on this forum, but also what she's learned in her own personal 12-step work. Michelle is a treasure. The things that she shares are so interesting and so insightful, and I could listen to her talk forever. So I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. In fact, I think it might be one of those episodes you'll go back and listen to again because there's so much in here. Today I'm going to share with you part one, and then the following episode will be the second half of this interview. You know, you've heard hundreds of stories over the years as you've followed these women and and watched and and interacted with them. And again, you're in a unique position to to watch these patterns and to see uh, trends um, as far as what helps them heal, what doesn't help them heal. And so I think it's really important for our listeners to, to really benefit from your uh, accumulation of, of, you know, thousands of hours of stories and, and input to really, you know, help us understand what, what things are you noticing? What, what things make a difference? What things get in the way of, uh, of good healing? Uh, I, I do love the power of patterns. Um, let me share a few that I've observed first and foremost, um, Isolation, getting out of isolation is absolutely critical. That, just that alone, I feel can do so much to shift 
what's happening in an individual's life. And that's true for both the addict um, or the one struggling and the loved one. Um, and what does and that I find look- it remarkable. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. What does that look like when you say get out of, getting out of isolation? Can you be specific about what that what you've seen that looks sure, like? Sure, sure. Yeah, good question. Um, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, there have been women on the forum who have dealt with this pain that they've experienced for decades. It, it makes me want to weep hmm. that because it is such a quote unquote embarrassing problem because of fear of what other people would think about them or about their spouse, um, because just, just because for, for a variety of reasons or because they haven't had or didn't know about resources, they've suffered alone right. for years or decades. And, and one of my first um, little mottos was, let's use the tool that has brought so much pain to b- help bring healing. And this, this internet-based forum has been um, a very powerful tool because women can come use an anonymous name. Um, they don't have to share any details. And, and I encourage them not to share details that would be identifying so that they feel safe and they don't have to worry about what people in their sphere of quote unquote real life. This is as real as it gets. You know, when people right. talk about the internet not being real, I just say, that's not, you know, I understand that this there, Facebook. there are problems, but <laughs> this is, this is as real as it yeah. gets. It's a, it's a sacred space as mm-hmm. women come out of hiding and, and put voice to their stories and to their pain, because how, how can the savior minister if we don't know what we need him to minister to, you know? Right. And so being able to get out of that shell of, of fear and hiding and to, and to put words to what they're dealing with. And then as more and more people do that, again, the, the patterns of the stories help them realize that they're not alone. Because I do believe that the adversary wants people to be alone and to try to do it alone and to think that they are alone. And so when you break past those two falsehoods that you have to do this alone or that you are alone and no one else will understand, that is a huge part of the battle right there toward healing. Yeah, absolutely. Because he loves loves lies Mm -hmm. and those two lies keep people absolutely paralyzed once once they break out of, of secrecy and silence and isolation then movement really can start to happen. I've seen that in, in the 12-step rooms too, that all it takes, somebody will walk in the door for the first time and there are times when I literally feel a, a, like a whoosh mm. from heaven. You know, I feel movement yep. simply because they walked in the door. They walk in the door thinking that they have failed, that walking in the door is a signal of failure. And those of us who've been there for a while just want to stand up and cheer and say, because you have the courage to reach out, God can do so much more simply because he won't violate that agency. As, as people take steps, simple steps to reach out, then amazing things can happen. What a beautiful perspective. I mean, it's so opposite of what happened in the garden, right? When they found themselves in trouble and Satan's directive was to hide from each other and from God. And the truth of it, like you're saying, being manifested in these these uh, sacred 12-step spaces and online in these forums is 
you know, when you show up to be healed, the energy changes, you change, the people around you change just by being present, by being able to, to witness and be witnessed. And that is just so integral to actually healing all the way through. I love that. What a great, yeah. What a great principle. I think in a sense it is, um, I have come to really love the Adam and Eve story for Mm -hmm. this reason. Yeah. Because I think it, it repeats the, re- the reality of the plan over and over again, mm-hmm. you know, are you going to hide right. or are you going to step out and, and, and step out and ask for help? And as you step out, you know, of course, asking for help of God directly is critical because we're mortals. We need each other too. That yeah. is one way to reach out to God is to reach out to another human. Beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, that, thanks for clarifying that. I, I just think sometimes we, we think of coming out of isolation or coming out of hiding. And, uh, I think, I think it can be, a, you know, some people feel like, was that, you know, do you just get on online in a forum and does that count or showing up in a room and you're saying all of it counts when you use your voice and all speak truth counts. and identify what the struggle is, you've come out of hiding. Especially with the intent to heal. Mm-hmm. If, if people come out and only for years want to just, rail on their life and you know i mean there there's a there's a process of of moving from just needing to be heard to wanting to heal but that intent over time really makes a difference too that wow i really i really realize i need help yeah um and we've we've made a deliberate effort to really create a an environment where you know, I, I leave a long, long leash for women to be wherever they are because I believe that God meets people where they are. Mm-hmm. He's not waiting out there somewhere. Okay, well, when you get to where I am, then I'll help you. Then no, we can talk, he right? Comes, <laughs> yeah, he comes to where people are, right where they are. And I try to create an environment where we can meet them right where they are with empathy and love and support. Wow. And and constantly gently pointing in a direction toward healing so that they can reclaim their agency. We talk often about how those with addiction lose agency. Well, those in trauma do too. Mm-hmm. They get so consumed by what is he doing? Where is he? What, you know, and, and, and what's happening? And I can't be happy unless I know exactly where things are. And, and unless I know that he's never going to do this again. And, and, and it's, it's asking for guarantees in life, you know, to be able to move from, that sense of trying to artificially control their environment to being able to surrender and let God be in control. Oh, it's just, it's, it's such an incredible, it's, it's, it's a difficult process, but I also like to remind the women that or friends in my 12 step circles as I, you know, what we say, wow, that sounds really hard. Well, the life that, that, that you live before you move <laughs> yep. into a healing process is not, it's not a choice between hard and not hard. It's a choice between healing and, and suffering Yep, absolutely. and being able to get out of suffering and move toward healing. It's all hard, but it's, it's what, what kind of an outcome are you trying to go for? Yeah, that's really powerful. Well, this is the easiest route of the hard. <laughs> if you're going to talk about hard, you know, the Lord said, my yoke is easy. And I never really understood what he meant until I saw what it means for people to let him carry their burdens and let him be so intimately involved in the process. And that when, what I see in my, in my work with uh, those who struggle and partners and the families is, you know, it reminds me of that, uh, that scene in that, uh, that Matt Damon movie, we bought a zoo where 
he's coaching his son and says, you know, it just takes five minutes of insane courage um, mm-hmm. to, do, to do something. And then everything works out afterwards, basically. And I think about walking into that room or getting yeah. online or opening up, opening up for help and admitting that you have a problem going and starting that process of turning toward healing. Um, I agree with you that one that yes, it's hard initially, but once you get into it, it's so much easier to live this life. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what other patterns? So you ask for other yeah. other patterns. Yeah. yeah. I can I can talk about any one for <laughs> we, we could do an episode for each there's, pattern. Yeah, probably, there's right? so many principles. Um, <laughs> another thing I like to say to the women in the forum is that when they are dealing with addiction or compulsive sexual behavior of a spouse or other kinds of dysfunction that that sort of have a life of their own um that the rules change quite a bit um i've seen a lot of women go to marriage therapy for example with therapists who don't understand how addiction works and they will try to encourage more communication, you know, date more, serve more. These are all really important and powerful principles for a healthy marriage. But when it comes, when you have something like addiction or compulsive sexual behavior hijacking a marriage, you've got to back up. You've got to back up and and deal with what you're dealing with first. And, and I think that that sometimes can be frustrating and difficult because, first of all, because we can hear a lot of that more typical advice in many settings, whether it be, you know, in a therapist's office or um, in a social media post right. or in our, you know, our, our, our gospel language and, and focus often di- focuses on the ideal, right? And we don't ever want to lose sight of that, but but the willingness to let go of, well, I wanted my marriage to look like this and now it looks like this and the grief that is experienced. And, you know, there, there can be a sort of hopelessness, but it's not anything like, you know, what is my life? What, what, you know, to, to adjust to the reality and accept the reality and then work just like I was saying that God meets us where we are to, to invite people to meet themselves where their life is. And to learn about basically the rules of recovery, right? Um, or the rules of healing. This isn't rules like checklist, you know, breathing down your neck rules. I don't want people to feel that, but mm-hmm. but to be able, there's so much power in people being able to um, reframe how to exercise agency in this circumstance, right? And, mm-hmm. and when they do understand how addiction works, it's actually, it's a very chaotic problem. But one of the things that I've learned as I have researched across the board, you know, I've researched multiple 12-step programs and multiple types of addiction. And I've attended meetings, uh, general addiction meetings for six years where both I've, I've interacted with both loved ones of those in addiction, mostly those who deal with drug and alcohol um, on both sides. And the principles are the same. Mm-hmm. The principles for a relationship with someone with an addiction are the same. 
And it's, it's so empowering because once you understand the patterns, then you know what you're dealing with. Right. And you can adjust accordingly. And, and even though addiction brings chaos, understanding the principle of, principles of how addiction works are really very simple. Right. It acts on the brain. You know, they, people lose their, um, it, 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 it impacts the part of the brain that, that um, deals with self-management, self-control, and empathy. And when you can understand that and you can see, oh, that's the addict talking, you know, that's instead of absorbing everything that's happening, oh, he, he's, not, he's not responding to me the way I want him to. He's not, you know, understanding that that's, you know, that's where he is in his process right now. But this isn't who he really is or who he really wants to be. And as those with addiction heal and as those who suffer from the trauma of addiction find healing um, and they, they embrace the, the truths of healing, then they can move toward, um, toward rebuilding a relationship. I think it was something that you shared about a three-legged stool that I've mm-hmm. shared often that the instinct is to let's fix our marriage. And, and often they need to take a step back and, okay, let's let the husband work on him and his process and the wife work on her and her process. And as they bring that strength together, then that third leg of the stool, the marriage, if you try to do the marriage alone without their individual processes, that stool won't stand. You need all three. And most of what I've seen has been, you know, get some, get some healing under your belt as individuals so you can bring that, that strength and that process into your marriage and, and, and really in a way sort of rebuild and start over. Right. Absolutely. No, I think, I think what you're saying is so critical because marriage advice is great for marriages where there's a foundation of equality and and safety and trust. And so when you've got that foundation, then date nights and uh, those kinds of things, you know, are, are critical to maintaining that connection. But when the connection has been, you know, basically nuked by secrecy and betrayal and, and crossing all kinds of lines, then the relationship is not on equal footing anymore. And so you have to have different rules to get it back to stability, to get it back to, to baseline. And so, yeah. you know, I think about um, a talk that Elder Holland gave in uh, back in 2000 on BYU, uh, BYU campus. It's, uh, it's called How Do I Love Thee? And... He, he basically, you know, describes what happens when, you know, um, he, he says what happens when you exercise emotional mastery over another person, which to me is the definition of gaslighting or keeping secrets from somebody, manipulating their reality. And, and I want to share uh, what he says about that because I think it, it really, it really uh, illustrates why you can't do standard marriage work when there's the presence of an active addiction like this, especially in early recovery. And he says... Um, he says, God, God will hold me accountable for any pain I cause my wife by intentionally exploiting or hurting her when she has been so trusting of me, having long since thrown away any self-protection in order that we could be, as the scripture says, one flesh, to impair or impede her in any way for my gain or vanity or emotional mastery over her should disqualify me on the spot to be her husband." And when I, when I read stuff like that, 
that that really clarifies for me, okay, we're dealing with something totally different here. When I've got somebody who's been living in secrecy and hiding for, you know, a year, two years, 20 years, you know, or longer in some cases, that has not been a marriage according to the definition Elder Holland's talking about. There's not a foundation of equality. There's not mutual respect and trust and safety there. And so you have to rebuild that. And that becomes the focus early on through accountability, through disclosure, through working separate recovery processes while you're trying to figure out still how to live together, but it's not the same marriage building that we see with uh, more stable and uh, equally yoked couples. Yeah, that's a great quote to really reinforce that. Um, I'd like to piggyback something on that as well, that often in gospel language, we talk about forgiveness and, um, and forgiveness is, is a gospel principle for a reason. Um, but it is not the same as trust. And I think that often I've, I've observed often women get very confused by that because they hear, okay, you need to forgive. And if you don't forgive the greater sin, you know, and and you need to forgive that, that is, that's often a a first go-to place. And I've seen, I've seen forgiveness unfold in a couple of ways. One, you know, once in a while, there's a woman who just says, okay, I just need to forgive him. Um, and then I think more often than not, what I've observed, and you can tell me what your observation has been, but I see forgiveness as being a fruit of healing. That trauma, by definition, puts someone into fight or flight mode. And this is, this is actually how we are wired biologically. When there are repeated threats, the body says, okay, I'm going to take over. I am going to protect myself and, and, and so that physical impulse to self-protect takes over. And the body was never meant to live in that high alert state forever. So right. the process of healing for a, a wife or a family member is to be able to move away from that fight or flight response to a surrender to God and, and the really surrendering the loved one to God and saying, I'm not going to try to control my environment or this person anymore Exactly. to try to get the outcome that I want to try to force safety for myself. And they learn to choose, they learn to choose, um, to surrender to God and to also make deliberate efforts to, for, Self-care can, can be misunderstood as this selfish, mm-hmm. you know, because there, there's this trendy idea of self-care, you right. know. But in, re- in recovery and healing, it really is, okay, I'm going to let him be where he is, letting go of that. And I'm going to focus on reclaiming my relationship with self and God. The, the, the true, my favorite definition of repentance is a fresh view about self, God, and the world. Mm-hmm. And the world becomes a very scary place when you're in trauma. Everything can become scary. In a sense, this is a form of repentance. We don't often talk about repentance in terms of healing. But with that definition, I think it's very, very appropriate that the mind becomes reborn. (laughs) The heart and the spirit become alive again. The, the, The individual is able to discover Oh, who I am again. So many women talk about losing themselves because what do they do? They end up feeling like their full-time job is to manage this thing 
this problem. And the more they try to manage it, the sicker they get. Right. And so being able to move away from trying to manage the chaos to, to really healing and reclaiming their, who they are, what their, what their strengths are, what their joy, what brings them joy and what their relationship with God is like, then they're able, because they've had some healing, to realize that, hey, God really does have this. And I don't need to be breathing down his neck to make him do what he needs to do. That's his job. That's between him and God. And then forgiveness can flow from that. To me, forgiveness is really at its core about understanding that God loves each of us and will work with each of us and that I don't need to get in someone else's business to make my life better. (laughs) I can just let that person have a process with God and, and let it go and just focus on my relationship with him. And when I focus on, on me and my relationship with him, then my relationships go so much better because I'm respecting their agency and I'm respecting their process and knowing that God loves them too. And I don't know that that's something that you can necessarily just impose on a woman at the beginning of recovery because she, she's in so much pain (laughs) that she doesn't even, she can't see straight. No. And, And forgiveness is often misunderstood as, wait, if I forgive him, that means I need to let him in. I need to open this door to more of this, this behavior that has caused so much trouble. Like, no, no, I think your definition of, yeah, I think your definition of forgiveness is beautiful because it's based in this idea of it being a fruit and there's a, there's a cultivation process to produce that fruit that no husband or bishop or family member can, like you said, impose on her and get her to produce that fruit in the early days, weeks and months of recovery that she has to cultivate that over over time and that it will come it will bear it will bear it its will own come. fruit yep absolutely yeah. i love this that is I, this yeah. is a process that another another pattern another principle oh goodness it takes time mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah <laughs> almost without exception the you know the one suffering from addiction or compulsive behavior and the loved one will want this done quickly. Mm-hmm. I just want to get past this That's so that agonizing. we can get back to our life. You yeah. know? Oh, the reality yeah. is that life will never be the same. I think that sometimes people are afraid of addiction. Oh, I hear that addiction is, you know, once an addict, always an addict, and this is always going to be my life. No, no. If recovery happens, life will be so different. Yep. And in reality, we all are at risk. The, the idea that addicts are the only ones who might have behavior that they could slip back to is, is, is really another lie. One of the things that I have learned in 12-step is that I'm no different. My story may be different. My struggles are different. You know, I deal with anxiety and perfectionism. I, I don't deal with things that have put my church membership at risk, but that doesn't matter because they have put my spiritual relationship with God and my peace at risk. And we are all fallen. We all have things that put us at risk. We all have things that we're going to always have to work on until we are, as one church leader said, safely dead. <laughs> and so, yep. so this, this process need not be feared. Mm-hmm. If, if people are willing, God can do miracles. And he's always at work. But the willingness opens up opens up so much more for him to be able to do 
just simple willingness. It's not a behavioral management process. It's not measured by, I like to say that, well, this is a, this, this particular phrase is not mine. This comes from Don Hilton's book. Um, you can help me with the title because he restores my reason. soul. Yes. Thank you. He restores <laughs> my soul. That repentance is not recovery. So getting a temple recommend back or being able to take the sacrament again or, you know, confessing to a bishop or to a spouse or stopping behavior. Sobriety is also not recovery. The, the lack of using drugs or alcohol or pornography or whatever the behavior or substance may be is not recovery. Recovery is re- reclaiming, being restored to spiritual health. Right. As step two says, it is about a relationship. It's, it's that definition of repentance again. It is a fresh view about God, self, and the world. And there's nothing to be feared in that. <laughs> it is so beautiful. Yes, there's always going to be the risk of falling back. But the reality is if somebody really understands recovery as not behavioral management, but as truly seeking a change of heart, that true conversion and an understanding of who God is and how much he loves us, because most addicts feel shame and they don't feel lovable and they feel, you know, they just feel like, many feel like they'd just be better off gone. Not that they necessarily actually harm themselves, but the, the belief that they have in their mind is the world would be better off without right. me. Right. No, it, yeah. Where does that come from, right? You know, right. recovery restores that truth that, oh, our God is so loving and so constant and so endlessly willing. As often as my children repent, will I forgive them? He is always willing to help. That never goes away until the great and last judgment day, which is a long ways away still. Thankfully, We've right? We've got time. <laughs> That's right. We've got time. And time is often feared in this process, but it need not be. Yeah, I love Leverage that. Leverage it. Savor it. Mm. Be grateful for the time. Yes, it's hard at first to realize that, okay, I'm on day one of trying to be sober, or I am on day one of trying to pull myself out of the spiral of trauma. And the beginning of it, beginning is, is the difficult part. But continuing as, 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 if and as people stay committed, then time does start to pass and patterns can change. And, and brains do heal. They are very plastic. Yes. It just takes time. Mm-hmm. And so time is on our side in this process. And I think reframing that instead of feeling, you know, trauma makes you want it fixed now in, in a defined way, in a way that is controlled and predictable, healing is about learning to lean into the process, which really is the process of life. If you want more resources of some of the writings that Michelle has done and some of the resource lists that she has shared, I will post links in the write-up that I do from Meridian Magazine on this podcast episode. You can also go to hopeandhealinglds.com and search lots of great resources on that website. Stay tuned for the next episode where I share with you the second part of my interview with Michelle Linford.